Those of you who know me know that I have never taken the pulpit before. And I'm not going to make a a big deal about that. But I am going to say this. One thing that has absolutely positively happened to me in my experience is in, in inexperience is in all sincerity. I do not know whether I've prepared a 15-minute sermon or a 50-minute sermon. (laughs) So, on one hand, buckle up, and on the other hand, be ready for an early lunch. In all seriousness, though, before we turn to the text, there's a mistake, I think, that we make in the church, and I don't think it's a mistake of the heart. I think it's a mistake of language. We talk about the worship portion of the service. And when we say, ah, oh, the worship part of the service and the, and the worship leader, we're talking about the time that we sing songs, maybe the time that we pray. And if we're particularly doctrinally well-informed, we know that prayer is in there too. But the truth is and always has been that the hearing of the word is God's plan for worship. And so if I had one prayer today, it would be that I would tell the truth about God's Word. But if I had two prayers, and lucky we get as many as we need, uh, the, the second prayer would be that today we together, as the body of Christ, are able to worship in His Word. So I'm going to go ahead and pray that before we turn to our text. Father God, May you increase, may I decrease, may your word be proclaimed truly, may your people be given ears to hear, and may we together worship in your spirit and in your son's name, amen. So our primary text today is going to be from the book of Mark. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Before the sermon is over, we're also going to be visiting Genesis 3 and Romans 6. So if you're the sort that likes to put your bookmarks where they're going to go and and know in advance where we're going, Mark 16, Genesis 3, Romans 6. But we'll begin with Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. And I'm reading here from the English Standard Version. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so that bought spices, so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Now, this is a straightforward narrative. It's plain on its face. As, as you read it, there are no real questions. There were no real questions that came to my mind. No confusions to sort out. Like, uh, you know, I kind of go, who is Salome? Because we don't hear that name a lot in a positive context in the Bible. And uh, so, you know, you check that out. And it turns out that we kind of don't know. There's one school of thought that says that she's the mother of James and John. And then you would remember her from that time when she said, Hey, Lord, would, uh, you know, when you're in your kingdom, can one of my sons sit here and another of my sons? Okay, might be her. Might also, according to some traditions, be one of Mary's sisters. And we don't know. What we do know is she was part of this community that was comforting each other, mourning together, and going to minister uh, to the body of our Lord. Turns out they had a problem with that. There was no body there. But we'll come to that later. Uh, but otherwise, there's nothing really in this narrative to explain. And so the narrative itself, the passage itself, will be our introduction today. And uh, we're going to look at three things because I was told I needed three points. We'll look... It's true, I was told that. We'll look at the necessity of the truth of this passage in our culture, the effect of this truth on our sanctification, that is to say, the living of holy lives formed in the image of Christ, and the power of this truth in proclaiming the gospel and saving the lost. So for those of you keeping track, those are our three points. And uh, as we go through, I'll tell you now that each one of them is shorter than the one before it. So if you find yourself going, when is he coming to the end of the first point? Don't worry. It gets better. So the necessity of the truth of this text in our culture. Now, the reason that I'm preaching on the resurrection in the middle of November is we've been in this series in Mark. And, and Randy's been preaching through Mark, and, and he asked me to stand in today, and he graciously allowed me to jump right into the middle of the series and take the best part. Thank you. So we're, we're, uh, we're looking at this resurrection today, and I couldn't help but think, uh, as I was preparing the first sermon I ever preached on the resurrection, and those of you who are paying attention, go, wait a minute, this is the first sermon you've ever preached. And that's true, but my mother, who's back there, so glad to have her. Uh, she's been quite ill, and, and we're delighted to have her back with us today. Uh, my mother would be able to tell you that any time in, say, middle school, high school, early years of college, if I was in church and somebody for any reason handed me a microphone, they would get a sermon. And it, it didn't it didn't matter. Our youth group has uh, been uh, spent uh, an afternoon feeding the homeless in the park. Is there anyone who has anything to say about it? And I take the microphone and I said, in Psalm 23, we read. And and so uh, every time I was given an opportunity uh, to, to speak, well, I'd been raised in church and I knew what sermons sound like. And in retrospect, I was. Uh, I was preaching him up. So this one particular time, I was in college, and I was in a men's choir in college. It was a Christian college. And so we spent our spring break touring, going to different churches, singing our songs. And so that means every Easter Sunday for four years, I was in a different church. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, as college students do, as I'm 
preparing to sing that day. I'm thinking about strange hypothetical things. And I think about this one strange hypothetical thing, like, like what would have happened if Jesus had been resurrected and, and he had immediately gone up to heaven without leaving the tomb? Like the resurrection and everything happened, but nobody ever knew. What, what would have happened there? And so I said, I think this will preach. So during their concert, they would give us a brief time for testimony. And, and most of it would be guys like we were touring and this is their home church. And they'd go, hi, mom. And then because they needed to say something, they'd go, I love Jesus. And how do you not clap for that? So everybody clap for that. And, uh, and so they give me the microphone. Uh-oh. And, uh, and it's Easter Sunday. And I knew it was Easter Sunday. And I said, he is risen. See, that's exactly what I did. I said, he is risen. And the congregation said, he is risen indeed. And I, I go, I've got him now. They have to listen to me. I might be dropping their part. So I, I talked about uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ. And we had just sang a song uh, called the Passion Meditation that, that went through that narrative. So it was fresh in the mind. And I talked about uh, the burial and this, this impressive tomb. And I say, you know, but death couldn't hold him in. And on this day, 2,000 years ago, Christ rose from the dead and immediately without leaving the tomb ascended into heaven. And they said, wait a minute, something's wrong, which is another way to get someone's attention uh, when you're speaking. By the way, if, if, you, if uh, you think everybody's just say something they know is wrong and all of a sudden they'll go, wait a minute, what's wrong with this guy? And, and so I said this and I said, yeah, yeah, he he went up to heaven and, and nobody ever knew and the world wasn't changed and it did nobody any good. And I said, no, that's not how it happened. I said, but isn't that how we treat it? We should be out there declaring the gospel. And if we're not, it is in a sense as though we keep Christ in the tomb. So there you go. Audience participation, say something wrong, and then punch him in the gut. That's, that's, the, uh, that's what I learned. That's what I learned growing up hearing sermons. Now, um, it, we'll return to this story in a few moments uh, to take a look at what I most got wrong. And I say most got wrong because originally I had said the one thing I got wrong and I didn't want the wise heads in the congregation to go, bless his heart, he thinks it was only one thing. Uh, so uh, we'll return to, to this to look at what I most got wrong. And when we do, you'll know that we've come to the end of our first point. James P. Carse is Professor Emeritus of History and Literature of I'm sorry, History and Literature of Religion at New York University. By the way, this brief uh, biographical information about Professor Kars is from Wikipedia, and I, I'm not sure what's worse, quoting from Wikipedia in a sermon or not admitting that you're quoting from Wikipedia in a sermon. So I decided to err on the side of no plagiarism. So from Wikipedia. James P. Kars is Professor Emeritus of History and Literature of Religion at New York University. His book, Finite and Infinite Games, was widely influential. Although Dr. Kars may not believe in God, he describes himself as religious, quoting, in the sense that I am endlessly fascinated with the unknowability of what it means to be human, to exist at all. And here, this line is the reason Kars 
is in our discussion today. And Carse's recent work on religion and belief provides a foil to new atheism. Oh, wait a minute. The guy who just said that he does not believe in God, what he believes in is the unknowability of what it means to be human. And this is the answer, according to our culture, to the new atheism. See, the moral and spiritual vacuum of atheism or materialistic naturalism is obvious even to the spiritually blind, spiritually dead culture around us. In the 70s, when I was, calling, uh, when I was growing up, we called this the God-shaped hole in, in the heart. And, and this atheistic, materialistic culture realizes that there is this vacuum this spiritual emptiness, and they're looking for a way to fill it. So many find themselves looking for a metaphor, a story, or a myth that they can cling to in order to attempt to satisfy that part of God's image bearers that were created to worship God, to glorify and enjoy Him forever. But hear this, all they want is the metaphor. The hero story in the great tradition of Joseph Campbell. And this story, incidentally, must be the story of either a purely human hero, Jesus, who was a, you know, a, a great teacher, as some would have that Jesus was, or if the hero is divine, it must be the sort of divinity that exists, as some people would insist it does, in all of us. They declare they have no need of a Jesus who insists that he is more than a metaphor. I quote from Carse's book, Finite and Infinite Names. And we have to give a, a, just a little bit of background to a couple pieces of Carse's language here. He's going to talk about the myth of Jesus. And when we hear and use the word myth, we think of something false. That's not the sense in what he's using it. The way that he uses it is whenever a story becomes so powerful that it affects the culture, that's a myth. Now, to him, it can be a true story or a false story. That's got nothing to do with it. The story has to have risen to the level of affecting the culture. That's what he says when he says myth. So he says the myth of Jesus is exemplary but not necessary. No myth is necessary. There is no story that must be told. Stories do not have a truth that someone needs to reveal or someone needs to hear. It is part of the myth of Jesus that it makes itself unnecessary. It is a narrative of the word becoming flesh, of language entering history. Now, again, this is Karst. Carse's language in this book. So when he talks about language, he talks about the difference between language and history. And he says, language is a conversation. It's a dialogue. It's a flexible tool by which we relate to each other. And history, on the other hand, he says, is the attempt of authority to dictate truth. So language is what we use to interact and history is what we use to control. So he says that the story of Jesus is the story of language entering history, 
of flexibility and dialogue and vague spiritualism coming in as an answer to oppressive religion. A narrative of the Word becoming flesh and dying of history entering language. And at this point he's saying that the death of Jesus was the representation of the attempt of authoritarianism to smash a divine dialogue. He will have nothing authoritative about his divine. His divine needs to be flexible. His divine needs to be a negotiator for him to have this comfortable uh, metaphor. He says, who listens or the one who listens and believes this myth cannot rise above history to utter timeless truths about it. This is the statement of our culture on the necessity of spirituality at the same time that we have the banishment of Jesus as a historical reality. And they say that this is the answer to the spiritual hole that the new atheism has left in their hearts. A couple of weeks ago, Alex Watlington was here, and he is the pastor of Reformed University Fellowship at USC. And he said this. He was asked what the most difficult part of ministering to these college students was. Is it, is it difficult in a very scientific, very materialistic age to get them to believe in what the Bible says? And uh, he replied, they're not concerned whether it's true or not. That's not even the question they're asking. They don't care. The question they're asking is, is it helpful or is it hurtful? Can you see these students looking for Karsa's, quote, exemplary but not necessary myth? The harmless, beneficial metaphor to fill their spiritual needs. Now, let's wash the taste of Kars out of our collective, but metaphorical, mouths by turning again to Scripture. And we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. And I'll begin reading in verse 8. Just for a little context, ultimately we'll be focusing on verse 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground which was never going to happen if they had obeyed the Lord their God. Adam, God told you the truth. You will die till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, this is the curse under which all creation groans. And this is why the resurrection of Christ must be more than a metaphor. I'm struck looking at this curse. And we don't need to to look at it in the text. We can certainly see it playing out in, in, in the world around us. But in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And... Uh, most obviously, and in straight lines, we go, well, yeah, there's, there's labor. There's labor pains. That's what this means. Well, it is, but it's not all that it means. How about the pain of miscarriage? How about the pain of giving birth to a child with a genetic disease that's only going to live a few months? Give me the metaphor that answers that of the sweat and the strife and the thorns and the war as we go from dust to dust this is the curse under which all creation groans and this is the the reason that the resurrection of Christ must be more than a metaphor I realize I've said that twice good So we'll look again at verse 15, this time from the King James Version, with which many of us grew up. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise, and here the New International Version uses crush. I like that. It shall crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I've heard a preacher say that the whole of redemptive history is a footnote of sorts to Genesis 3.15. The playing out of God's promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the servant. Serpent. I like the name of Jesus. I like the name of Jesus in the Hebrew, and I know nothing about Hebrew, but this is super cool. This is an etymology I was not previously aware of. See, uh, Joshua and Jesus are the same name, more or less. Uh, A lot of us know that. And so when uh, Joshua had it, it was Yehoshua. And then, you know, millennia later, like everything, they shortened it, and it was Yeshua when Jesus had it. Now, this is made up of two words. Uh, Yeho, or Yeh, is, is related to the name of God. So this is saying God. And then Ashua is a cry for salvation. It's a cry for help. So the name 
Yehoshua or Yeshua is the place where God meets our cry for help. And that's cool. So anyway, when, when Joshua was given the name Yehoshua, Joshua, God saves, his name was a statement of faith. God saves. It's what he does. It's how he acts in the world. And, and none... And Mrs. Nunn, the parents of Joshua, must have believed that because they declared it in their son's name. When the angel appeared to Joseph and told him regarding Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That name, that God saves, was a promise. This is the one. This is the moment in history that God meets our cry for help. That was the promise. When that same Jesus, the child of promise, died and rose again, literally, truly, not metaphorically, He enacted that promise. The same promise that a gracious God set forth in the middle of His judgment on the sin of our first parents. Jesus, who was named God Saves, became, enacted, the salvation from God. When He was born, His name was a promise. When He rose again, His name was the thing that He had done. Jesus is not risen in metaphor. He is not risen in story or myth. He has enacted God's salvation. He is risen in deed. He has done it. Now the world says, along with Kars, there is no story that must be told. The resurrection proclaims that there is a story that cannot be kept silent. It says that there is no truth that someone needs to reveal or someone needs to hear. But I tell you, no, God's word tells us all that the creation groans out of its need for this, out of its need to hear the gospel. The world says, give us a metaphorical God. A divinely human conversationalist to salve our spiritual wounds and make us feel better on the road to nowhere. And if you insist on believing a Jesus that is more than that, then you have nothing of worth to say. You cannot. And together, the body of Christ says that if we do not proclaim this gospel, this Jesus really risen, this God saves and acted in history, then nothing else we say is of any lasting value. Karsh says the myth of Jesus is not necessary. And I stand here today to tell you, please hear this, this gospel story, the death and resurrection of Christ, is the single most necessary event in all of human history. 
Without it, every human good that came before after it makes not a whit of difference and is no true good because without it, we are a people separated eternally from, rebelling eternally against, and suffering eternally the wrath of a God we were made to glorify and enjoy forever. Do you understand that if this particular good, this resurrection of Jesus is not truly true, then no good that we do humanly makes a whit of difference. This is the first good in the sense of primary importance because all other good depends on it. All other human good. God is good eternally. He has never suffered from a want of good and He is not dependent on anything. But no other human good matters. We are entirely dependent on this first good. Now, back to my first sermon. And you no longer need me to tell you what I got so wrong, if you ever did. I said that if Jesus never showed himself outside of the tomb, then if death and resurrection would have done no one any good. The truth is, when Christ rose again, he had accomplished the highest and most gracious good God gave his creation. The seed of the woman at long last, crushed the serpent's head. And that is so much more than a metaphor. And I'll tell you this, just in in passing. But we need to stand not only for the literal resurrection of Jesus, but the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. And there have been those throughout the, the history of Christianity to say, well, Jesus, Jesus rose as a spirit. He was a, he was a spirit being ever after. And he shed his, his dirty, awful, terrible humanity when he rose this kind of Gnosticism. And if Jesus was not raised in the flesh, never mind the problem we have with the Thomas story where you know, it was given fleshly evidence, But if Jesus was not raised in the flesh, then the seed of the woman never crushed the serpent's head. As a matter of fact, the seed of the woman, that part of Christ, which is his humanity, which is the only part of him that was the seed of the woman, died, was crushed. Gnosticism, which is this this idea that all flesh is bad and all spirit is good, and it includes the idea that, that Jesus came back only as a spirit. Um, we don't have time to develop this idea, but it's very powerful in our culture. And it lies at the root of many of the misapprehensions that we have about personhood and identity. Oh, what I feel to be real is real because it's in this spiritual, emotional realm. And that is the greater and higher and and more powerful, truthful reality than the flesh that I wear. And you can see the effects of us uh, affecting our culture. And this is one of the reasons it's very necessary. We insist that not only is the resurrection of, of Christ not a metaphor, but it's a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. We don't have time to develop that. Uh, but I, I leave that for you to uh, enjoy looking at further. And as promised, we've come to the end of my first point. I assure you to the next two are much shorter. And, uh, and, and it seems that I have not, in fact, prepared a 15-minute sermon. So, what does that mean in our lived-out Christian lives? This more-than-a-metaphor gospel. We are saved, surely. We will have God to glorify and enjoy forever. But for now, we have to live here. 
how then shall we live? Back to the scripture. As promised, we're going to Romans chapter 6 and we'll begin in verse 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In that same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Now, I remember another sermon illustration. This one wasn't my fault. It wasn't a fault at all. It was when I was, uh, when I was, uh, when I was a teen. I was in a youth group. And one of the great things about being a teen in the church is you get to hear a lot about peer pressure, which is kind of remarkable in hindsight to me. Like in the church at large, maybe in the culture at large, we act like peer pressure is something that arrives in middle school and then leaves about your sophomore year in college. And in that window, you need to hear about it all the time. Um, I would uh, tell you that anybody who, when making a decision, asks how it will be received by the people around them before they ask or louder than they ask whether it's right or wrong. Hi, you're still under peer pressure. I don't know if you do that. It, it, it hasn't stopped. But we really preach it at the teens. And so it was this, this sermon about peer pressure. And the guy really jumped on verse 11 here in Romans chapter 6. He said, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. And he said, look, you can take this and get it in your head. Right? So when the temptation comes and when the peer pressure comes, just visualize yourself because this it's it's as if you were dead to sin so you visualize yourself as dead are you lying there on the on the table and your friends come by and they say hey we ought to chase these girls and how's a dead man going to react he's not going to care and hey we ought to smoke these cigarettes and and and, you you can't tempt a dead person and you need to use this you need to look if you just go, man, that actually is helpful. I don't like to think of my... Okay, if that helps you, then God bless you. There were times that it helped me. But if this imagery from verse 11, this useful metaphor, 
is all that we take from this passage, then there is a sense in which we've sold our inheritance for a pot of stew. It's comforting. It may give us strength in the moment, but all in all, it's a bad trade compared to the entirety of what's here in Romans. Watch what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says here. Watch all the literal language. Let's see. We'll go uh, to, to verse 3. Beginning with don't you know. Not can't you imagine. This is not a metaphor, but don't you know. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Literal language. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the God the Father, we too may live a new life. Literal language. Not physical, spiritual, but not metaphorical. This is a literal truth. We have died with Christ. And we live with Christ. Therefore, we come down to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is Paul saying, hey, here's a great metaphor you can hold on to to deal with sin? Hmm. he's just spent at that point nine verses telling you that you really are dead to sin but alive to God. And he is saying, since you really are dead to sin but alive to God, start to think of yourself as dead to sin but alive to God because you are. It's not a metaphor. It's a spiritual reality. One day it's going to be a physical reality. Hallelujah. But today... It's no less real. In a few moments when we close, we're going to sing Joy to the World together. Now, I didn't choose this hymn because I'm suffering from retail holiday creep, and I think the Christmas hymn should arrive in church about the time the Christmas decorations arrive in the stores. But I chose it for two reasons. First... If we can't sing joy to the world at the resurrection of Christ, there is something broken about the gospel inside us. But secondly, I chose it because it is at and in the resurrection of Jesus that this phrase becomes particularly true. We sing it in the song every year in Christmas. At Easter, it becomes true. No more let sin and sorrow reign. It's true in the resurrection of Christ. That's why I'm ready to sing joy to the world. I'll pause here a moment because we're focusing in this Romans passage on sin. I'm going to pause to say a word about sorrow. Because all those sorrows and the curse in Genesis chapter 3 are also broken. In, temp, in, in terms of their sovereignty, in terms of their rule over us in the death and resurrection of Christ. We have people here among us who are suffering deep and powerful sorrow that we won't hear about. Some we will. Some we won't. But to them I say, sorrow, as powerful as it is, doesn't reign anymore because Jesus died and he rose again. Not in metaphor, 
but in reality. And he has promised. That same guy who promised that he would crush the serpent's head and then he did it, that same guy has promised that he will personally wipe every tear from your eyes. And sorrow is hard, but it doesn't rain. In his resurrection, Jesus is made good on the promise of his name. He is risen and we who died with him are risen with him. In spirit in this world, in the flesh, in the world to come, but nowhere just in metaphor. So you may ask at this point, but what do we do? I mean, I get that this is spiritually true, but life is hard. This is the Genesis 3 world. Sin is powerful. What do we do? Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself and know that it's not a metaphor. And go to a church where the gospel's preached to you. And, and, and choose friends who proclaim the gospel to each other until it saturates your heart. Until you know yourself as someone who has died with Christ and has risen with Christ. Okay, my last point's the shortest. And it's short enough that I didn't even write any notes for myself. Look, there's the end. There's where we are. But we're going back to our original text because I want to say a word about evangelism. I almost preached an entirely different sermon. I almost preached a sermon called Solving the Wrong Problem. Watch this. Now I've lost it. Ah, verse 3. is the women are going to the tomb. They're going to embalm Jesus. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, this was an exercise in solving the wrong problem. Who's going to roll the stone away? Look, their objective, they thought, was to go and embalm someone. And so the real problem wasn't that there was a stone in the way. The problem was there was no body to embalm. It kind of defeats the uh, you know, potential of uh, carrying on with an embalming. They weren't going, although they didn't know it, they weren't going to embalm someone. They were going to witness a resurrection. Now look, I've argued against metaphor, but I'm about to make an analogy. And I'm about to go back to my first sermon on the resurrection and talk about our evangelism. When we go out to share the gospel, we start thinking about the obstacles. Well, you know, this is a work situation and we kind of have a policy here about proselytizing. Look, I work for the government. I know what these policies are like. And, and, uh, you know, so maybe I need to lure them out to lunch and maybe if I buy and they're opposed to the gospel in this way and opposed to the gospel in that way and opposed to the gospel in this way. And we put all our concern into how we're going to move the stone. And there is wisdom in being a little bit tactical. Paul said, I will be all things to all people so that I might by all means reach some. Jesus said, be wise as serpents when you go out and gentle as doves. There is sense in being tactical about your approach to evangelism. But you're not going to move a stone. You're going to witness a resurrection. See, because there's just a couple of things that are going to happen. It may be that the Spirit of God got there before you and you begin to share the gospel and say, well, finally, finally, see, I used to be dead and now I'm alive and I don't know what to do with my sin. 
Or maybe as you speak the gospel, like preaching to dry bones, you witness that resurrection firsthand. And the Spirit of God awakens that person's heart to the gospel. You're not going to move stones. You're going to witnesses, witness resurrections by God's Spirit. And that's an analogy, but it's not a metaphor.